Hello. You are listening to the Grieving Parents Sharing Hope podcast. We are here to walk with parents on their unwanted journey of child loss, guiding them to a place of hope, light, and purpose, not in spite of their child's death, but as a way to honor his or her life. And now, here is your host, author, speaker, and bereaved parent, Laura Deal. Hi, today I am going to read another chapter from the same book I read from last week. If you did not listen to the previous podcast, you will want to listen to it first because today builds on what was shared last week. Plus, this week will make a whole lot more sense as it explains why I'm reading this and what the situation is for the author, Peter Gregg. So if you have not listened to episode 227, please go back to that one first. For those who heard the previous episode, let's go ahead and get started. This chapter is called Engaging the Silence. In April of 1960, Martin Luther King Jr. was emerging as one of the most prominent black leaders in America. The civil rights movement was gathering pace all around him, but opposition was mounting. Just 18 months earlier, King had been stabbed by a mentally deranged woman in New York City. In this tumultuous atmosphere, the 31-year-old pastor gave a magazine interview outlining his stance with regard to suffering. As my sufferings mounted, I soon realized that there were two ways that I could respond to my situation, either to react with bitterness or seek to transform the suffering into a creative force. I decided to follow the latter course. I have lived these last few years with the conviction that unearned suffering is redemptive. End of quote. At the age of 31, with less than eight years left to live, Martin Luther King Jr. understood that life's great trials invariably either make us bitter or make us better. They never leave us unchanged. Mother Teresa succeeded in doing this too, by transforming her private struggles with faith into a creative force. But for every person who responds creatively to seasons of despair, there are others who allow their disappointments with God to make them cynical and who abandon him because he appears to have abandoned them. The title of this chapter pertains to engaging the silence of God. To engage means to involve oneself actively with a person, situation, or thing in order to release some latent potential. When our prayers go unanswered, and especially when God is silent, we have an important choice to make that can shape the destiny of our lives, either to react with bitterness or seek to transform the suffering into a creative force. In this chapter, I want to offer some practical tools to help you do more than just survive Holy Saturday. I want to help you actively engage the silence of God and redeem the disappointments of your unanswered prayers into something creative for God. Even when Jesus was pinned to the beams, gasping for breath and devastated by the apparent abandonment of his father, his terror found its vocabulary in Scripture when he cried out in his mother tongue, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mark 15, 34. Jesus realized that his agony had been articulated with chilling accuracy in the words of the psalm. Psalm 22, 1 and verses 16 through 18, which says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Far from abandoning the word of God when he felt abandoned by God, Jesus found the scriptures more poignant and pertinent than ever. If, as Canta La Mesa suggests, Jesus became an atheist at that moment, his atheism somehow still found its context in the truth of the Bible. When God is silent, the galvanizing revelations that formerly came to our life through the Bible and through the still small voice may seem little more than a distant memory, but this does not make them any less true. In fact, when God is silent, it becomes especially important to feed vicariously on the words he spoke back in the day when life was an easy conversation of two-way prayer, when the sermon seemed to be aimed directly at our hearts and the Bible really was the book we wanted by our bed. My friend Justin has lost his sense of taste. There are vague hopes of a surgical procedure that might one day restore it to him, but for the last few years, eating has been little more than a flavorless solution to the nutritional needs of his body. Ironically, L, his wife, is an accomplished and enthusiastic cook, and whenever we go to their house for dinner, the food is invariably delicious. When God seems absent, his word, given with such love, seems devoid of the exquisite flavors it once had. Others at the table may be feasting on the same food with delight. Taste and see, they say enthusiastically, but for us, there is no flavor. God's word has become bland, and yet significantly, it remains as nourishing as it ever was and as vital to the well-being of our soul. If we are to engage the silence of God, turning it into a creative force in our lives, we can learn from the way Jesus used Scripture in his moment of abandonment. Although God's word had become bitter and no longer sweeter than honey, Psalm 119 verse 103 on his lips, it remained relevant because it had proved itself painfully true. When God is silent and seems to have left us to suffer alone, the Bible still voices our desperation and contextualizes our doubt. With Job, Jeremiah, and those dark psalms of dislocation, we too may fill the silence of God with cries of outrage and lament. And at such times, there can be reassurance in this realization that our circumstances, though painful, have also been articulated and thus validated repeatedly in Scripture. Maybe the silence means something after all. Maybe it's leading us somewhere. With a certain tenacity of faith, we identify that somewhere within the silence is the presence of God. How can he be present yet absent? Perhaps it is like a distant star flickering faintly in the darkness whose light we see without knowing for sure whether the source itself is still there. Has the star died or is it still burning brighter than the sun? We remember times when God seemed to speak to us or to use us or to answer our prayer, and we determine to stay true to those moments of certainty, even though the actuality is so alien to our current experience. 
and thus, by the distant light of past encounters, we may navigate the darkness, like a mariner steering by long-extinguished stars when every other point of reference has disappeared. Lunch on that Sabbath, straight after synagogue, would have begun as it always did, with a blessing spoken out. Are you ready for this? Over the bread and wine that were to be served with the meal. If any of the eleven remaining disciples were capable of eating that day, the grace spoken before lunch on Holy Saturday would surely have stabbed their hearts. This is my body, he had said as he broke the bread. Do this in remembrance of me, Luke twenty-two nineteen. Do this in remembrance? No one could forget. Perhaps it would be better to forget. Words from the past could not make Jesus come back to life nor could they anesthetize the pain of the present. But then again, maybe these echoes still had the power to spark little flickers of maybe and what if in the hearts of the disciples. If Jesus had known what was coming, might God possibly be concealing a bigger plan? This can be our experience too. When God is silent and our prayers are unanswered, when the word of God is flavorless in our mouths, there can sometimes still be faint flickers of hope and meaning expressed to us and for us in Scripture, in fellowship, and in the bread and the wine. By reading the Bible, spending time with Christians, and participating in the Eucharist, even when these activities feel like merely going through the motions, there may well still be moments when hope and faith seem to break through the clouds of doubt. My God, my God, why did you dump me miles from nowhere? Doubled up with pain, I call to God all the day long. No answer, nothing. I keep at it all night, tossing and turning. And you, are you indifferent above it all, leaning back on the cushions of Israel's praise? That's Psalm 22, verses 1 through 3 in the Message Translation. I wonder if the disciples attended the synagogue on Holy Saturday. They had probably never missed public worship on the Sabbath before, and we know that such routines tend to become even more important when a person is in a state of shock. So if the followers of Jesus did attend, it's fascinating to consider what passages of Scripture they may have heard and what prayers they may have prayed. Although no one knows for sure, because it was the high Sabbath in the middle of the Passover celebrations, it's quite likely that on the day that Christ lay dead, the synagogues of Israel studied the story of Exodus. If so, the pathos would have been unbearable for those who had believed in Jesus. Imagine them sitting there less than 24 hours after Christ had bled and died, hearing about the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and about the cries of those in Egypt for the death of their firstborn sons. We know that a criminal had already believed in Jesus while dying on the cross and had thus become the first Christian in paradise, even before the resurrection. See Luke 23, 42-43. If a condemned thief had responded to Jesus' death with faith, is it too much to imagine that the day after the crucifixion, some of the synagogue preachers also began to grasp the significance of the previous day's events as they considered the story of the Lamb of God? Perhaps some preachers did begin to wonder, but elsewhere, in other synagogues, indignant scribes and Pharisees probably seized the opportunity presented by a Sabbath sermon to quell dissent 
with snide insinuations about a certain son of Pharaoh who had deservedly died the day before. And if they did make such remarks, were they not correct? Hadn't Jesus become the incarnation of sin, the cursed son of Pharaoh, so that the sons of God might go free? That Sabbath, the friends of Jesus must have been haunted in their grief by so many strange signs. Meanwhile, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, being men of status, would probably not have worshipped at a provincial synagogue, but rather at the temple itself. They had already put their necks on the line for Jesus, and I suspect they wouldn't have dared to set tongues wagging by the eloquence of their absence the day after Jesus' crucifixion. Perhaps a few fishermen and tax collectors from out of town could lie low among the crowds on the high Sabbath, especially if their lives were in danger, but not men like Nicodemus and Joseph, entwined as they were in civic responsibility. If these two men did attend the temple that day, what did they see? Mark's gospel tells us that as Jesus breathed his last, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, chapter 15, verse 38. Is it possible, therefore, that worship in the temple that day took place against the dramatic backdrop of that torn veil? If so, I wonder what message this spoke into the silence of that day. Scholars are divided as to which one of the veils in the temple was torn. Some people argue that it was the curtain between the holy place and the holy of holies, in which case the spiritual significance would be profound, but only the priests could have seen the damage as ordinary people were not allowed into that area of the temple. The other thrilling possibility is that the torn curtain might actually have been the outer veil between the outside court and the holy place, in which case every person who attended the temple the day after Christ's crucifixion would have witnessed firsthand the torn veil and glimpsed the holy place behind it where only the priests were permitted to go. I want you to visualize this. The outer veil was not, as I used to imagine, merely a big neck curtain wafting in the breeze. The outer veil was made of linen and it was 90 feet high. That's higher than a four-story building. Such huge dimensions would explain why Mark makes a point of saying that it was torn from top to bottom. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, describes four bright colors on this veil that symbolized the four elements of the universe, fire, earth, air, and water. And above this, he says, there was a panorama of the heavens. If it was the outer veil that had been torn, the sight of this towering depiction of the heavens and the elements ripped asunder would have been an unsettling backdrop to the day's rituals. No doubt most of the worshipers would have blamed the damage done to this priceless artifact on the previous day's minor earthquake, see Matthew 27, 51. But we know that others, like Nicodemus and Joseph, already had darker theories. If I had been one of the disciples, I know exactly where I would have spent that Sabbath. I would have left Jerusalem as fast as my legs could carry me and headed back to Bethany to hide out with Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus. With Jesus dead and buried, there would have been no one that I'd have wanted to see more than Lazarus. Lazarus had loved Jesus. Lazarus had been one of the Lord's best friends. And best of all, 
Lazarus knew a thing or two about being dead and buried. His very life defied the logic of despair, and the fact that his house was a couple of miles out of town made his home the perfect bolt hole. It was in Bethany, at the dinner party thrown by Simon the leper the previous week, that Mary had wept and anointed Jesus' feet with perfume. That perfume had been expensive, so I imagine its fragrance could still be smelled in the air around Simon's house. And speaking of Simon the leper, he was another harbinger of hope for the simple reason that thanks to Jesus, he wasn't a leper anymore. In Bethany, the crowds had cheered, Hosanna! The place had been one of joyful worship. In Bethany, there were many seeds of comfort for a scared and grieving disciple, and perhaps there were also faint whispers hanging in the air like that perfume, suggesting that all was not lost. I hope you have a place like Bethany where you can go when you're wrestling with unanswered prayer. It could be a place or a book or a piece of music that reminds you of all the good things God has done in the past. It could be a person like Lazarus whose very being makes the presence and power of God real to you even when life is at its worst. Bethany is a connection point that reminds you of something you once knew for sure that God can do immeasurably more than all you ask or imagine. Ephesians 3.20, that the kingdom remains a matter of power. See 1 Corinthians 4.20, even when there's little evidence of it in your present situation and that all things are possible for those who believe. Matthew 19.26, Bethany's the kind of community or the kind of family or the kind of place where you can sometimes still smell the perfume of God's presence. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's what Paul told believers in Colossians 1.27. Sometimes the only place we can find the hope of glory is in one another. Not in prayer, not in the Bible, not in worship, but in community. The 19th century rabbi Mechanim Mendel of Romanov once said that human beings are God's language. In other words, God speaks to us through people. He speaks to us through doctors and nurses who work so hard to heal and help us, through children who ask for a bedtime story, through friends who know how to make us laugh and when to sit in silence, and through the preacher at church, the documentary on television, and the song on the radio. We expect God's voice to be unmistakable, a rumbling revelation, or an insistent inner whisper. Yet for those with the ears to hear, he often speaks most eloquently through the commonplace actions of ordinary, unwitting people. One morning after a traumatic night in which Sammy had once again been rushed into the hospital, I stumbled downstairs to get breakfast for the kids. The paramedics had tromped and clomped into the house just after midnight, carrying Sammy noisily out to the ambulance, and somehow Hudson and Danny had stayed asleep through it all. So here they were now, slurping their Weetabix in the kitchen, oblivious to the fact that their mummy was not upstairs in bed, but was in fact in hospital on the other side of town. Okay, let's go, I said, eyeing the clock. Time for school, I told Hudson. Nursery for you, Danny, I said, lifting him out of his chair, and hospital for me, I thought. But what am I going to say to Sammy to help her feel less depressed and scared? 
Turning myself into the tickle monster, I chased the kids laughing down the hallway and out to the car, almost colliding with the postman as we stepped out the door. Uh, thanks, I said, taking the letters before strapping the boys into their seats. As I did so, I noticed that Danny's hair was standing on end like an electrically charged orangutan. I toyed with the idea of fetching a hairbrush, but I couldn't be bothered. If you can't look like an orangutan when you're two years old, when can you? After dropping the boys off, I arrived back at the hospital where I found Sammy in a ward with six old ladies. The peculiar smell of hospital breakfast still hung in the air. Morning, I said breezily as I stooped over to kiss her forehead. I don't normally kiss people's foreheads, but somehow it seemed the appropriate target in front of the six old ladies looking on. I handed Sammy the morning mail and assured her that the boys were fine. We were scared and exhausted, deeply discouraged to be back in the hospital, but trying not to show it. The first envelope was a greeting card signed by at least 30 members of a church far away in Sheffield, assuring us of their ongoing love and prayers. A thing like that would have encouraged us whenever and wherever we received it, but waking up on this particular morning on this particular ward with the six old ladies looking on, it was a perfectly timed reminder of God's presence even and especially here. The doodles, Bible verses, and spidery ink on that card were to us God's language when we needed it most. The University of Wisconsin Center for the Study of Pain conducted an experiment in which researchers timed how long volunteers could keep their feet in buckets of freezing water. They discovered something very remarkable. Whenever a companion was allowed in the room with the person whose feet were being frozen, he or she could endure the cold for twice as long as those who suffered alone. The presence of another caring person doubles the amount of pain a person can endure, the researchers said. The same is undoubtedly true of emotional pain, and here again we see that human beings are the language of God. When I first wrote this book, I had been receiving regular prayer bulletins tracking the deteriorating condition of Rob Lacey, an actor and author fighting terminal cancer. Steadily, in spite of our prayers, the ugly, agonizing actuality of unmiracles had been working itself out in Rob's body and in his young family. The process had been complicated and darkened by the fact that Rob appeared to have been healed four years ago, and because Rob was quite well known, this miraculous recovery received plenty of exposure at the time. For many reasons, I've wanted to tell you about Rob, to share his story that is Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Easter Sunday all rolled into one. But it has all seemed a bit too bewildering and immediate, and I just haven't known where to begin. Then I came across a piece of writing by an American named Ben Irwin, who flew 4,000 miles to see Rob just days before he died. Ben's journal says everything I've wanted to say, only better, and he has kindly agreed to let me include it in this chapter. It's called Five Minutes with Rob. Recently, my wife and I traveled to Wales to visit a friend who was dying of cancer. When we left a week later, I wondered how to begin putting the pieces of my faith back together. Navigating the maze of hospital corridors, I braced myself to face the worst. But nothing could have prepared me for the sight that greeted us as we walked into Rob's room. The person lying in front of me barely resembled the one I had last seen less than a year before. The weight loss was dramatic. He looked like a skeleton with flesh hung loosely over his bones. It took all his might to prop himself on, on his elbows as I sat down beside him. 
It was the third time in 10 years Rob had battled cancer. The first diagnosis came six months after he was married. The cancer returned a few years later, and a couple of years into this second bout, one that was supposed to end his life, it began to look like a miracle was happening. Gradually, the cancer disappeared. The doctors could only scratch their heads. There was, the doctor admitted, no medical explanation for the cancer's disappearance. So Rob and his family did the only thing anyone can do in a situation like this. They basked in God's incomprehensible favor. Fast forward four years. The cancer came back, initially in his bladder, then his lymph nodes too. To add a touch of cruel irony, less than a month before he died, Rob's wife gave birth to their second child, a beautiful baby girl. This is the end of that reading. Confronted by the tragedy of this incredibly talented young husband and father fading away in the prime of life, Ben Irwin had many questions for God. His writing continues, If God is in complete control, doesn't that make him responsible for Rob's slow, torturous death? Isn't he to blame for robbing a wife of her husband, depriving a son of his dad, and denying a baby girl even the memory of her father? What grand purpose, what divine scheme could ever justify this cruelty? On the other hand, even if God doesn't actually cause these things to happen, if he simply allows them to take place, is he any less responsible? If I had the cure for AIDS but did not share it with those suffering from the virus, society would hold me accountable for their deaths. Is God any less responsible if he has the power to cure cancer but does nothing? That night when I crawled into bed, I was raging on the inside, furious with God for allowing my friend to die, stunned that he was making Rob's wife and children endure all this. The next day, we went to see Rob one last time. He was asleep. Rest being such a precious commodity in his weakened condition, we chose not to disturb him. But as I sat at the nurse's station writing our goodbye on a scrap of paper, I sent something that had been absent the day before. God's presence. It wasn't overpowering. The air was not thick with it. It was small, subtle, barely perceptible. I didn't leave the hospital with answers to any of the questions that plagued my mind the day before. My theology and my ideas about God were still in a state of upheaval. But in their place emerged a new idea. Whatever else God may or may not be, He is present in our pain. He suffers with us. Why He doesn't step in and simply put an end to the suffering now, I don't know. Believing that someday He'll make everything right doesn't make life easier now. But still, the fact that God was with Rob in the midst of his suffering was at least something. It was almost as if, on some level, God had cancer too. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases, Matthew eight seventeen. He didn't just sympathize with us, and he didn't just bear our spiritual sickness. The text says he actually carried our diseases. In the end, we traveled 4,000 miles to spend five minutes with Rob, but I wouldn't trade those five minutes for anything in the world. Sometimes it's not enough to tell a suffering friend you're praying for them. Sometimes you have to become the answer to your own prayer. 
our last night in Wales, as we gathered with mutual friends to pray for Rob, I realized that God is present in the midst of suffering because we are present in it. We are God's presence. That's the end of what he wrote. South African Archbishop Desmond Tutu once recounted the story of a Jewish man in a concentration camp who had been forced to clean the toilets. The man knelt with his hands immersed, swabbing and scrubbing away at the filth, and as he did this, his Nazi guards sought to humiliate him further. Where is your God now? he sneered. Quietly, without removing his hands from the toilet, the prisoner replied, He is right here with me in the muck. Holy Saturday is the day on which we wonder, where is God? Yet the answer may be that he is right there with us in the muck. When we are present in a situation, no matter how terrible it may be, he cannot be absent. Whenever life gets tough and we cry out to God for help, our desire is always to be airlifted out of the theater of war. But more often than not, instead of airlifting us to safety, God parachutes down to join us in the muck and chaos of our situation. I doubt that the Jewish man cleaning the toilets had nice spiritual feelings to confirm the truth of his conviction that day. But he was right to assert that the presence of God was there with him and in him. So too was Ben Irwin right to assert that in the face of cancer, God is present in the midst of suffering because we are present. At Rob's bedside, Ben and his wife realized that the presence of God is neither a feeling nor a theory but a physical reality fleshed out in our lives whenever we share in Christ's sufferings with love. Ben and his wife had become God's language of love to a man about to die, and Rob Lacey had been, and is, God's language too. With hindsight, we know that Holy Saturday was not the end of the world. It was the space between two worlds, a day on the very cusp of beginning. Living as we do with the hindsight of Easter Sunday, we can endure our Holy Saturdays with a certain optimism not afforded the disciples that day. God may be silent, but we know that he will speak soon. Many of our prayers will go unanswered, but not for long. We may even be dying, but on our Holy Saturday, we have reason, good reason, to believe in the resurrection awaiting us on Sunday. Like Lazarus and Mary Magdalene, we can look back at all that Jesus has done for us in the past with grateful hearts, even if we don't know where he is right now. But unlike them, we can also look to the future with realistic hope that Sunday is coming and the best is yet to come. As we walk around from day to day, waiting for a breakthrough in our career, our marriage, our mental health, our bank balance, our cycles of addiction, our best friend's illness, our child who's far from faith, we do so with our hope in Jesus risen from the dead. And hope does not disappoint, Romans 5, 5. At several points in the preceding pages, I have cited theologian Alan E. Lewis, whose life's work culminated in an extraordinary book entitled Between Cross and Resurrection. Lewis was one of the very few theologians ever to explore in any depth the profound meanings of Holy Saturday that we have barely scratched in these two chapters. 
While writing his brilliant book, Lewis was diagnosed with terminal cancer, and so theology became autobiography as he found himself enduring his own Holy Saturday. The book finishes with a powerful prayer written by Lewis himself as he prepared to die and which was subsequently read out at his funeral. Here, then, are the last few lines of that prayer from a dying man whose life had been dedicated to exploring and engaging the silence of God. Hear our prayer for a world still living in Easter Saturday existence, oppressed and lonely, guilty of godlessness and convinced of God-forsakenness. Be still tomorrow the God you are today and yesterday already were. God with us in the grave, but pulling thus the sting of death and promising in your final kingdom an even greater victory of abundant grace and life over the magnitude of sin and death. And for your blessed burial, into which we were baptized, may you be glorified forevermore. Amen. That's the end of of this chapter. If you are where this book talks about finding yourself even feeling rage that God allows so much injustice, you're not alone. I want to encourage you to find that place of Bethany like he talked about, a certain book or a song, a specific person, a place in nature, somewhere you can turn to remind yourself of the wonderful things God has done for you in the past and that he will continue to be faithful to you now as you continue traveling this unwanted journey of your child being with him now instead of with you. God is good, not because he does what we want him to, but because he is all-powerful and all-knowing, and he has a good plan and a meaningful purpose for your life still. And this is not in spite of your child's death, but because of his or her life. I know, like he said, we want to be medevaced, airlifted out of this theater of war that we're in, right? But God has parachuted down to be with us in our pain and suffering. Even if you can't feel it, even if it doesn't seem like it, He is with you. And I know that because you're listening to this now, and He is with me, and He is with you within this podcast episode as we share in this together. For those who want more information on the book I have been reading from these last two episodes, it's called God on Mute by Pete Gregg, spelled G-R-E-I-G. I do highly recommend it. It's an honest book, just raw, about unanswered prayer written by a man who birthed the 24-7 worldwide prayer movement, whose wife, like I said in the first episode, I had a brain tumor surgery, but she's had severe seizures ever since then. Now, I'm going to put a link to the book on Amazon in the show notes. And just to let you know, it is an affiliate link. And that means that if you click on that link and order the book, GPS Hope will be given a small portion of the purchase price of the book as a donation. Pete also works with a team of writers to produce a daily devotional called Lectio 365. And I actually use this app several times a week. It's a morning and evening devotional app that you can either read or listen to. 
And I put in my earbuds and I listen to the evening devotion probably four to five nights a week. I go into bed, I turn out the lights, and I turn on this app. And in the morning, I listen to the app, the morning devotion, maybe once or twice a week. I'll put the link in the show notes to where you can find out more about this app as well. Some of us are starting to think about the chilly fall weather that will be on us soon. And some of us have been in that chilly weather already. And GPS Hope, I don't know if you knew this, has long sleeve t-shirts. We have hoodies, sweatshirts, and jackets that have the ending podcast saying on them. It's They say, hold on, pain eases, there is hope. So you can wear this as a reminder to yourself and a message to others and keep yourself warm in the process. Just go to our online store to see the different styles and sizes and colors at gpshope.org store. And I will also put a link to that in the show notes. Let's go ahead with our birthday segment for this week. Zachary Tyler was born on September 11th and is forever 18. Patrina Charlene Bostick was born on September 12th and is forever 28. Justin Seehafer was born on September 16th and is forever 28. We celebrate with these families the day these children came into the world. It will always be a special day. If you would like to have your child's birthday announced the week of his or her birthday, I would love to be able to do that for you. Just go to gpshope.org slash birthdays. Fill out that form and submit it, and I will share your child's birthday the week of his or her birthday with the listeners. And Dave will also send you an email to remind you to listen that week. 1 John 4.16 says, We have come to an intimate experience with God's love, and we trust in the love He has for us. And I really do believe more and more that when we doubt God, and when we're going through these dark times, and we think He's abandoned us or betrayed us, it's because we still don't have the depth of the knowledge of the intimacy of His love. The more we understand His love, the more we can trust Him in these dark times, even in the pain and the confusion. And we can hang on through the darkness because we know how much He loves us and we don't understand. But there's something about knowing the depth of His unique love for you, for your child, that will keep you holding on through the darkness and holding on to God. Where else can we go, right? My verse for this year is Ephesians 3.17, and it says, Then by constantly using your faith, the life of Christ will be released deep inside you, and the resting place of his love will become the very source and root of your life. If you're really struggling with why it seems like God is staying silent right now, I want to encourage you to do whatever you can to immerse yourself in the truth that God loves you. He loves you uniquely for who you are. He loves your child. And this was not the end for him or her. It was the beginning of experiencing an absolutely perfect, intense, and unique love being poured out on them constantly in a way they have never experienced before. 
Now, I know that doesn't take away the pain of our missing them and wishing they were here. But let me just say, our children are not having a problem at all believing in God's love for them or for us. If you're like me, I would do anything for my children, including giving up my own life, which we all wish we could have done, I know. The thing is, I could never give my children the kind of love that God gives. So in that sense, I'm thankful that Becca is experiencing that now, even if she gets to before I do. And even though it leaves me in pain here missing her, I want the best for her. And God can give her even more where she is now than I could have ever given her here on earth. I know that everything will be made right someday. And like I said, knowing that what our children are experiencing right now does not take away our intense pain of missing them, but you don't have to live with the pain of feeling like God betrayed and abandoned you. He is suffering with you in your pain, even if he is silent for the moment. I say that from experience, from my own times of darkness and from many, many others who have been in that place as well. I'm going to say you can trust the process, even in the pain. Be determined to trust and believe that no matter what you feel or don't feel, that God is with you in the pain and darkness. How do I know that's true for you? Two reasons. Because he sent Jesus to experience pain and suffering so that he could be with us in this world, in the things that we go through, and because he led you to this podcast, and he is with you right now, through me. We are in this together. So hold on. Pain eases. There is hope.